Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here this week recording from the great state of Maine, and my co-host Daniel Larison is in his home studio in Pennsylvania, so we are safely outside the Beltway. Nevertheless, we have a great guest today, Marcus Stanley, who is going to talk to us about wrongheaded Washington orthodoxy in terms of China and the global economy. In the meantime, Dan, let's zero in on another big mistake in the making, pushing U.S. special forces back into Somalia and the brewing dangers there that seem to never go away, no matter how much military assistance and aid we plow into that troubled country. Back in May, Biden authorized the redeployment of several hundred troops into the country to battle a rising al-Shabaab after Trump redirected those forces elsewhere during his term. Now we are hearing reports that al-Shabaab is getting stronger and more influential in the country. Some may say that the absence of U.S. assistance there may have caused the vacuum, but experts much smarter than I have pointed out that the violence in Somalia or in other parts of Africa like the Sahel have continued, even gotten worse with the presence of foreign militaries. There seems to be no debate over the matter here in Washington. The White House continues to use the existing post 9-11 authorization for the use of force to justify these deployments, and Congress appears disinterested in asserting its authority here. What do you think, Dan? Are we shipping our special forces into a cauldron of festering violence? Well, I mean, that's that's what we have been doing. We've and it's that's been our Somalia policy, uh, with a, with a with the exception of a brief window when Trump pulled them out. Uh, and and resettled them in neighboring countries. Uh, we we've had troops in Somalia for uh, better part of a decade, I think. Uh, and and there have been we've been conducting drone strikes against Somalia going on fifteen years now. Uh, and and so the, the the question that needs to be answered, and I don't think that the Biden administration answered it very well. I don't think any administration has answered it well. Is why does it matter to the U.S. Uh, enough that we're actually fighting this war in Somalia uh, in concert with and on behalf of the Somali government. Uh, because while al-Shabaab t- is technically affiliated with al-Qaeda, they claim to be affiliated with al-Qaeda, uh, they, they don't actually pose any kind of real threat to the United States. And, and it's hard to see how they could. They're, they're a local militia. They're fighting over local issues. And while they they might want to associate themselves with Al Qaeda for the the cachet that that might bring and the some international assistance that might afford them, this really is uh, an internal Somali conflict uh, in which we have very little at stake. And so, while it's understandable we want to to help shore up the government, uh, it's it, it doesn't make sense to me that we keep going back to the same failed counterterrorism policy that we've been pursuing for all this time, especially when it's it's been clear that as we've been involved, al-Shabaab continues to grow in strength. Uh, and it might grow in strength regardless. It, it may not depend on our policy, but our policy isn't going to solve that problem through military means. Uh, the, the, the solution, if there is one in Somalia, has to be some kind of political settlement between the government and al-Shabaab uh, whether that's some sort of power sharing arrangement or or some sort of formalized peace agreement, I don't know what form it would take, but it it has to be something other than throwing more troops and and missiles into the mix and expecting a different result because we we've we've tried this already. We've been trying it for a decade, and it it doesn't work. And it's also on extremely tenuous legal ground because, as you said, it's it's wrapped up in the two thousand and one AOMF, but the connection between the, the events that 
led to that resolution being passed and a war in Somalia 20 years later uh, is non-existent. There, there's no there's no real connection between the threat we were responding to then and whatever's happening there now. So it's, uh, it, it is a serious mistake that Biden made, I think, in sending those troops back in. It should be noted that when Trump withdrew them from Somalia, he didn't stop our military operations in Somalia. He just had those troops flown back in right. from Djibouti and Kenya and elsewhere so that they were, they were quote-unquote, commuting uh, <laughs> to work. Uh, and that, that was the, the style of warfare we were practicing uh, in the late part of the Trump administration. So it's not as if Trump ever actually got us out of the conflict. Uh, so that, it's important to understand that. Um, but, but actually having more troops in the country uh, is not an improvement, obviously, over having them coming in from other countries. So it's, it's, a, it's a mistake. It's a waste of resources. Uh, and, and it's on very shaky ground constitutionally, I think. And, and Congress needs to be much more active in pressing the administration, uh, both for the, the legal case for how this is justified and also for some explanation of what the strategy is and why it's going to work out any differently this time than it has in the past. And I don't think the administration has any answers for that. I don't think so either. I mean, it is an absolute continuum. I mean, you and I have been following this for 20 years now. After 9-11, we created Al-Shabaab. Because I, as you remember, we didn't like the fact that the country was starting to be controlled by the Islamic Courts Union. It was an Islamic law. And guess what? Somalis liked it. Somalis were feeling security for the first time in like 20 years before that, after all the warlords and all the fighting. And they were finally getting some semblance of security. And we didn't like that because they were Islamists and we were in the throes of the global war on terror. So what did we do? We started supporting the warlords again, and then they battled it out. And meanwhile, Al-Shabaab grew out of that. It's the same story from Iraq, where we battled Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS took up the, the vacuum. We, we created Al-Shabaab, and now it is, we're using that as the justification, using Al-Shabaab as the justification for staying there and continuing military campaigns and assistance and training. And uh, there is absolutely no debate about this in Congress whatsoever. And I just saw in the news this week that over the weekend, over last weekend, the U.S. conducted airstrikes in Somalia and so supposedly killed two Al-Shabaab fighters. Big deal. Two others are going to pop out somewhere else. And it, again, it'll be a justification. We talked with Nick Terse, last week on the show, we talked about, you know, U.S. proxy wars all over Africa and the Middle East that, that Congress has no interest in discussing or asserting its uh, authority over. And so I don't see this going anywhere good. Another expert, Michael Horton, who I don't believe we've had on the show yet, but he's done a lot of work on this issue and he's done a lot of research on some, the next door Somaliland which does not have the Al-Shabaab or the extremist threats that Somalia has. And guess what? They never had the U.S. there. They've eschewed assistance, whether it be military or otherwise. They've eschewed Western and foreign militaries coming in and telling them what to do and how to be secure. And guess what? They're doing a lot better than Somalia. And he's written uh, this extensively. I'll put it in the show notes. 
because it's, it is amazing the comparison of these two neighbors, one having every Western uh, and, and, and Pan-African organization involved in their business and the other not, and, and the former being bedeviled by Islamic uh, extremist violence, you know, for, for 20 years. So um, I just, I, I'm very disappointed in President Biden because he's making these decisions. They are popping up in, in the New York Times and other, and other papers um, as a fate, the accompli, and, you know, our, our, our lawmakers, as usual, are just too, I don't know, they just have no backbone for the fight. Well, and, and one of the things that I've noticed in the way that this gets reported on is that it, it gets presented simply in terms of what makes the most sense operationally. Right? So if it's, if it's more convenient or if it's easier to have troops in the country than to have them flown in from somewhere else, then that must be the preferable policy because you don't want to, you want to make it as, as efficient as possible or as, as uh, functional as possible without thinking about the reason for the operation, without thinking about the reason for the policy behind it. And so the, the, the military presence and our military involvement in Somalia is simply taken for granted uh, by so much of the reporting. And it's, it's only a, a question of quibbling over the details of how it's being run when, when we really ought to be getting at the, the fundamental question of why are U.S. forces in the year 2022 engaged in, potentially engaged in combat operations uh, in Somalia when we face no threat from Somalia? Uh, if we're being honest about it, you, you can you can spin out some sort of fantasy about how uh, an Al Shabaab operative might try to smuggle himself into the United States or something, but it's it's simply not very likely at all. And 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 why would an Al Shabaab operative even want to harm the United States? Because U.S. forces are there trying to kill him and his allies. So why why continue to feed that when the the existing threat is so minimal, uh, and especially when, in the course of conducting these operations, uh, Somali civilians are killed. Maybe not a huge number, but but certainly uh, far more have died because of either errant drone strikes, errant airstrikes, or or as uh, people caught up in the blasts that result from targeting uh, specific leaders. Uh, and and I think the the estimates run something like. Uh, between 100 and 200 people uh, have been killed by our weapons, uh, innocent people in Somalia by, by our weapons. And that also uh, fuels recruiting for al-Shabaab because people naturally resent having their relatives and friends killed by a foreign government. So it's, I don't see how we're contributing anything but more, uh, more violence and more suffering to a country that has already known far too much of it. I completely agree with your assessment, Dan, of uh, the U.S. national interest, and I and it's, I'm, I'm I lament the fact that I really do see that the military-industrial complex at play here, because there is consistent justification for us to be in there by uh, U.S. generals who go before members of Congress to at budget time when they're looking to have their their programs renewed, you have think tanks, you have other, you have lobbyists, you have all sorts of special interests in the, in the State Department to keep these militarized programs going, to justify 
why they consistently need more money, more troops, more involvement. And, 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 and I saw this most recently in, I believe it was a, a New York Times story, and don't quote me on this, but there is a movement afoot to call Al-Shabaab an international terrorist organization now. So you had experts who are being quoted in, the, in, in this lengthy article about Al-Shabaab saying, oh no, they're going beyond their, you know, their, the country borders of Somalia. They have aims to be internationalist. They want to supplant Al-Qaeda and ISIS as a transnational uh, Islamist uh, organization or a leadership, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, 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 um, the proto-caliphate. And come on, you, I, I think I heard a cry all the way from Washington, D.C. to Maine for our, all these special interests in Washington whose ears perked up at that saying, OK, this, this means money for, for, for us. Uh, and the, in the military, that's music to their ears. Because they go to Congress, they say, oh, my goodness, this isn't just a Somalia problem. This is a, an African problem. This is possibly a Middle Eastern problem. This is a global war on terror problem, you know. And mark my words, in a, in a month or two, if we keep seeing stories like that, we'll probably see more troops be put into Somalia. This is how it works. But you raise the, the salient issue. Is it really a national security threat of the United States? And the answer is no. And one, the, the danger with any of these predictions about uh, a terrorist group or, or a militia becoming more uh, focused on international targets is that it will it can become uh, and often does become a self-fulfilling prophecy because outside forces take an interest in uh, attacking that group in attacking the militia. Uh, then they see those countries as their enemy and they lash out at them for that reason. And so... Uh, Al-Shabaab has conducted operations outside of Somalia, it's true. They, they launched an attack on a base in Kenya, and actually some Americans were killed in that attack uh, because Kenya is uh, in operating in support of military operations against Al-Shabaab. So there, there, there is blowback on the countries that get involved in these things, uh, especially if they're close by to Somalia. Uh, but that does not in and of itself prove that Al-Shabaab has grand ambitions uh, to to wage terror across the world, it 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 suggests I think otherwise that we ought to reconsider the entire approach, uh, which has been heavily militarized all this time, and which has clearly failed and will fail again unless it is changed. Welcome Marcus Stanley, Advocacy Director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Prior to joining the Quincy Institute, he spent a decade at Americans for Financial Reform. He has a PhD in public policy from Harvard with a focus on economics. He has been writing quite eloquently lately about the global effect of sanctions on Russia and the lack of diplomacy coming out of Washington in order to stop the war in Ukraine. He is also spearheading a coalition of like-minded left right groups that are trying to demilitarize Washington's policy on Russia, Ukraine. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kelly. Yeah, and I'm very excited. Marcus is obviously my colleague and we work 
really well together. Um, back in April, you wrote for Responsible Statecraft about a number of troubling statements by the Western economic and monetary leaders about Russian sanctions and the unwillingness of other world powers, namely China and India, to get on board with punitive Western measures against Moscow. Building um, this, if you're not with building this, if you're not with us, you're against us approach that could eventually turn the world economic order on its head. You said, and I'm quoting now, that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's April speech went, quote, beyond threats to outline a more profound reconsideration of what the conflict with Russia would mean for the world economic order. Going forward, she said, quote, it'll be increasingly difficult to separate economic issues from national security, end quote. She outlined a new U.S. approach to trade based not simply on economic integration or growth, but a new concept of, quote, free but secure trade, which would seek to reorganize global supply chains around, quote, friendshoring to a limited set of trusted countries, something that I note came up in the news this week. Again, Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen talking about friendshoring. Marcus, can you talk about what this means and why we should be possibly wary of such an arrangement? Yeah, and to be clear, you know, uh, the, the Quincy Institute uh, and I personally myself favored sanctions on Russia as a response to the, as, as one response to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, so it's, it's not... Uh, it's not simply about the sanctions, but about something that we've been seeing in a lot of areas, um, which is kind of the war in Ukraine as the starting gun for a bipolar division of the world between uh, the U.S. and a set of our allies and um, and a set of our adversaries uh, and sort of the challenge thrown down to the world that you're on one of these two sides. Um, and I think that there's there's a lot of, and, and of course the, the hostile countries are generally portrayed as we saw again in the visit to the Middle East recently or Biden's visit to the Middle East uh, just last week, uh, usually portrayed as uh, Iran, uh, Russia, China, uh, North Korea. Um, and the... This division, I think, has a lot of problems just from a sheer national security perspective because we're sort of uh, driving our enemies together into uh, into a coalition between each other, and we're not allowing for um, you know we're we're not allowing for the legitimate uh, sovereignty of each of those nations and the divisions that they might have or the ways that we might be able to cooperate with them on particular issues. Uh, but what, uh, what Yellen and others have been pointing to is kind of a reflection of this new bipolar, uh, world in the economic order, in the, uh, in our economic policy. Uh, since World War II, the U.S. has really emphasized economic integration uh, as central to uh, our policies and actually to helping global efficiency and productivity. 
And after the Cold War, you know, we sort of built uh, an order that uh, allowed for economies around the world, China, India, the United States, Europe, all to be sort of globally interoperable, uh, to trade, to build supply chains, um, and to, uh, to allow for investment across all these different countries. And it's generally believed by economists that this uh, had some really substantial benefits for uh, global productivity and growth. And what Yellen and others are describing now is uh, a potential economic division where we wall out uh, countries like uh, China. Uh, you know, China's the most prominent example. We're already doing it with Russia uh, from uh, supply chains uh, and potentially also other countries, if they're not on our side in this global division, uh, could potentially be walled out too. You know, th th there's the potential for telling countries uh, you're with us or against us and either you trade with uh, with our enemies or you trade with us, but not both. So sort of using economic American economic clout uh, to build this uh, security alliance. Um, and I think, you, you know, your term wary is a good term for this because I, I think there are, a lot of dangers in this course. Um, at the same time, it's very unclear what this is actually going to look like on the ground, um, how far we're going to be able to, uh, to go with it. Um, and there's, there's lots more to say, but I'll, I'm going to take a breath and let you, uh, let you respond to that. Well, it seems, it seems as though what you're talking about is an extension of this, autocracies versus democracies order that the Biden administration has been promoting, perpetrating, trying to sell to the American people and to the West as some future uh, frame for how we view the world, how we deal with other countries. And I'm not so sure that the American people are fully on board with reorganizing the economic order. They, they sort of inherently get this whole idea that, oh, well, democracies are good and uh, you know, autocracies are bad. And you and I, and we know I, I don't agree with that frame because I, I feel it's superficial and not uh, helpful uh, in the long term, realistically. But are they really trying to expand that whole approach, that whole theory to how we deal with the world economically. And if we're already, if we're already suffering in this country, and this was before the war, before COVID, from supply chain issues, globalization and its impacts, what will trying to, to sort of jigger the, the, the world, the economic order along those lines, whether, you know, it sounds like along national security and, and diplomatic lines, what would that possibly look like? Well, you know, there are a lot of what I would call incoherencies and uncertainties in this uh, framework, uh, in, in this sort of general concept that have yet to play out. Uh, and you sort of uh, hinted at, at two of them uh, in what you just said, uh, which I'm going to expand on here a little bit. The, the first is 
um, democracy versus autocracy. You know, that is sort of our our ideological slogan for how we we want people to perceive uh, the division between the U.S. and its allies and other nations. But as we just saw with the visit to Saudi Arabia, you know, it's it's not really uh, that simple. Um, right. And because we have many autocratic countries that are traditionally our allies and we feel need to be our allies for geopolitical reasons. So even as we put this uh, sort of ideological slogan out, uh, it's sort of belied by our actions. And although, you know, the the propaganda environment in the United States is such that you can use this rhetoric uh, very freely and no one will really question you. Uh, but around the world, the hypocrisy is is very evident. And the, um, the there's there's another set of issues around democracy versus autocracy that, um, you, you know, a key sort of battlefield for um for in, in terms of this, this division between the U.S. and its adversaries are countries that are sort of non-aligned, like uh, India, Turkey, uh, Brazil, uh, countries in Asia. Uh, and, you, you know, the, those countries, many of them actually do have democratic institutions, but the, the U.S. has shown itself very willing to sort of jigger the definition of democracy as we would wish to condemn, you, you know, uh, leaders we don't like as autocrats, even Modi, you know, who has some disturbing ethnic uh, politics, but was democratically elected in a democratic country, the world's largest democracy. Uh, you know, there, there are many who uh, condemn him as an autocrat. Uh, certainly Turkey looks, looks more autocratic. I think other countries looking at this are somewhat hesitant to kind of sign up for potential U.S. condemnation of their their internal politics. Um, and, you, you know, the question of whether we could or would want to wall these intermediary countries out of our supply chains and economy, you know, is a very big one. And I think it's doubtful that we, we would or could. Um, it's it's even doubtful that we could with China, to be frank about it. Um, I mean, it's it's very ironic in D.C. that we, on the one hand, see these speeches about friendshoring, but then at the very same time, we see the Biden administration talking about relaxing tariffs on China because of the da damage they're doing to the U.S. economy in certain areas. So we we are very schizophrenic about. Uh, the extent to which we actually want to do this or could afford to do this. And um, the, the second, I think, big, another, I think, big set of issues around this is the debate around globalization. And you, you mentioned this, uh, you, you said, you know, we've already been harmed by globalization and can we afford to harm ourselves again? Well, you, you know, this division, this, this approach of, uh, potentially walling out adversary nations um, or nations like China, you can think of it as deglobalization. And, um, you, you know, there are certain arguments for deglobalization because the, uh, the effect of the global economic integration that we spearheaded uh, has been very diverse. You, you know, it's, it's helped many and harmed others. 
and in the U.S., you know, it's it created the greatest, fastest reduction in poverty that we know of in in world history in China. You know, so it benefited. It it helped create a mass middle class in China, and helped create massive reductions in in poverty in uh, many countries around the world, and it created. In, in the U.S., it had economic benefits, too. It, uh, it boosted corporate profits. Uh, it reduced inflation because we were getting lower cost goods uh, from overseas. It actually led to a very uh, extended period of, of very low inflation uh, in the United States. It was a major contributor to that. Um, but at the same time, it harmed the American uh, working class and uh, and lower middle class and middle class, I would say. Um, so there, there's a lot of domestic, <coughs> you, you know, there's there there's I think a domestic desire to reverse some of the elements of globalization, to reshore manufacturing in ways that could help the working and middle class. And Trump, you know, this was part of Trump's appeal. Uh, it was part of the populist appeal of some Democrats, Bernie Sanders and other Midwest Democrats. Um, but I think we have to ask, you know, is this friend zoning, is, is this securitization of the economy actually going to pay off uh, for the working and middle class? Uh, and it, depending on how it was done, you know, it might, but it might not. I mean, one way that this could play out is that we shift supply chains, not from China back to the U.S., but from China to other countries that we want to draw into uh, security arrangements with us. Uh, and these are less efficient and it boosts inflation here at home. Uh, Biden, uh, Yellen actually said we may be looking at a regime of permanently higher inflation. Uh, if we securitize global trade. Um, and uh, another aspect is it, it could end up with subsidies for uh, American corporations like semiconductor manufacturers or whatever with no, uh, no guarantees that the benefits of that are actually passed on to uh, the working class or the American middle class. So uh, even though globalization has been a double-edged sword for for the United States, uh, for many in the United States, I don't think you can assume that deglobalization, especially led by the national security state, is going to benefit the American middle class. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate having you on. Uh, turning uh, to, to China more specifically, uh, well, one of the reasons why there's all of this emphasis on decoupling from China and, and moving uh away from relying on China for supply chains is, of course, this, this great fear that has been stoked that China is the next great uh, enemy uh, to be opposed, uh, and that, that China is, in fact, trying to displace us as the, the hegemon uh, of the entire planet. Uh, in the piece you uh, co-wrote with Michael Swain, uh, you explain how heavily the Pentagon leans on exaggerating the military threat from China in particular to justify ever higher budgets. Uh, the, that emphasis on a military threat, as you say, profoundly mischaracterizes the nature of U.S.-China competition. Uh, and while we focus uh, heavily on the military side, our economic statecraft is largely missing in action, as we saw with the ASEAN summit, and again, as we see with our uh, relations with Pacific Island nations, or, or rather lack of relations with them. Um, 
how can the U.S. rebalance its foreign policy so that it's not focused on military power to the exclusion of everything else? Well, uh, th and thanks for having me on the show, I should say. Um, yeah, that, that's a big question. I think, you know, there's an ambient sense uh, in the United States of China as an enormous threat uh, to the United States. And to be frank about it, you know, there's there's reason for that, because you, you, you talked about uh, global hegemony. Well, China is presenting the U.S. with a threat we really sort of have not faced uh, since we became uh, a world power, which is that it, it seems fairly clear uh, that China will become the world's largest economy uh, within, you know, by some measures, by purchasing power parity, it's already the world's largest economy. I'm not sure that's the best measure at the cutting edge, but it, it does seem uh, that unless China shoots itself in the foot, um, you know, which is always possible, uh, it is going to become the world's largest economy within the next uh, few decades, uh, certainly by 2050. Uh, and by the end of the century, it's going to be not just the world's largest economy, but a much larger economy than the United States. Um, and that, of course, is driven by the combination of China being becoming a middle-income power and the fact that it has about four times the United States population. So even if uh, China is not as wealthy as the United States on a per capita basis, you know, it's not as the average Chinese person is not as rich or, or prosperous as the average American. Um, as soon as China gets, you, you know, um, even to half of our level of average uh, wealth per person, it could become twice our size as an economy. And, you know, the, the U.S. has never in its history uh, really faced that kind of economic overshadowing by another country. I mean, obviously, we had in the 19th century, we were on our way up and uh, Britain was much larger than the U.S. as, as an economy. Uh, but there, you know, Britain and the United States are very culturally linked and so on. Uh, that, that's another European power. And then from World War I on, really, the, the U.S. Was, was the most powerful economic country uh, in the world. Um, and so what we're, stare, what we're you know, staring down the barrel of with China is uh, another country that could be uh, much larger economically uh, than we are. And that's a scary prospect because uh, geopolitical power uh, tends to follow economic power uh, to, to some degree or, or extent. I mean, you're not going to be uh, shoving around another country that's that much larger than you economically, and they are going to have their say uh, in the world order. Um, so, you know, this is, so if, if you want to think about it this way, uh, the existence of a country with a much larger economy than ours is a threat to U.S. global dominance. Uh, you know, um, there's there's no way around that. Uh, but then the question is, uh, is it a military threat? Is it best thought of uh, as a military threat? And to which I would say the, the answer is no. And the article that I wrote with Michael Swain um, talks about that. 
um, there really isn't evidence that China is trying to copy uh, our path to to global dominance, which is uh, which is really a, a path of military dominance. Um, there's no evidence that China is trying to build a network of global bases that looks uh, and, and global military deployments that looks anything uh, like ours. Um, and of course, we do see this steady stream of stories every time China interacts with another country in almost any way that even mentions security arrangements or even if it doesn't mention security arrangements, but just, you, you know, helps build a harbor in another country. We get stories about how, well, maybe China's going to want to build a base there. Um, maybe this is a threat to U.S. forces in the region somehow. I mean, there was, sorry, I should have looked this up before coming on, but there was an African country um, on, Guinea, uh, I think. What, what's that? It was Equatorial Guinea, I think. A, yeah, it was on the it was West Africa on the the Atlantic, and uh, I think China was building a har helping them build a harbor and uh, uh, having various uh, infrastructure agreements with them. And there was this panic that there was some Chinese involvement in building uh, port infrastructure anywhere on the Atlantic Ocean. You know, this is somehow supposed to be a threat to the United States when, of course. The U.S. has AFRICOM. You know, we have Africa Command of the U.S. military. This is uh, like a, a region within the U.S. Africa is, uh, you know, structured as a region within the U.S. Uh, military hierarchy, which is, you know, far, far beyond anything in terms of the China's globalization of its its military, uh, which which really hasn't happened yet. Um so we, we don't see a, a Chinese strategy of trying to dominate the, the globe by military force. We do see uh, the Chinese competing off their own shore uh, for military uh, superiority uh, in the South China Sea in the Western Pacific, which is uh, the area off their shore. Um, and they are contesting U.S. military dominance of that area in a, in a real way. And that has to do with, um, with their security concerns and, frankly, also with their claim to Taiwan uh, or their, their claim to sovereignty over, over Taiwan. Um, and they don't want to see the U.S. Uh, militarily dominant uh, off their coast, and they may want to... Uh, you know, I don't think China has decided to or intends in the near future to invade Taiwan, but that's got to be part of their planning, the ability to project power there, the ability to counter uh, U.S. projection of power there. Um, but that's a very long way competing uh, for dominance right off their coastline militarily is a very long way from trying to compete for global dominance militarily. Uh, and that was one of the points we were making in that article. And the the other point that we were uh, making is that it's more beneficial to the U.S. to think in terms of uh, a defensive strategy in the Western Pacific, uh, a strategy that raises the costs 
unacceptably raises the cost to the Chinese of any aggression against our allies uh, in the Western Pacific or any aggression against uh, Taiwan in the Western Pacific. Um, because that is that defensive strategy is much less expensive to the U.S. and, frankly, less threatening to China than a um, than sort of starting an arms race to compete with them for military dominance right off their shore, uh, because they could outspend us in that arms race. For one thing, they don't have a global military to try to fund. They are focused. Uh, closer to their own shores. So they, you know, we would be financing a global military while they would be financing uh, a military that's competing in one region. And another is that they spend only half of what we do as a share of their economy on their military. Uh, they traditionally have spent about 2% of their economy on their military. We spend about 4%. Uh, so they have a lot of room to ramp up. And further, as I said, there's soon going to be a larger economy than ours. So, uh, you know, trying to start uh, an arms race with the Chinese is both unnecessary and a losing game because, um, you know, the, the cost of raising the price of aggression to them uh, in, uh, in the Western Pacific is, is much lower. I mean, it would be fantastically difficult or expensive and risky for them to try to uh, invade Taiwan. Um, and then, sorry, I'm, I'm uh, talking a lot, but I, I did want to say something about this, this long-term threat uh, of China as a larger economy than ours. I mean, I, I think we have to take that very seriously and think about that and what it means and what it means for the U.S. role in the world. Um, because you know, I think China is pursuing a strategy of attempting to gain influence through economic growth, through becoming a trading partner. And it's it's the leading manufacturing trading partner of two thirds of the countries in the world uh, through financing infrastructure, through things like Belt and Road. Uh, this is a strategy for gaining global influence. Um, and it's not a strategy that I think hard power and threats and uh, saber rattling is going to counter very effectively um, because countries would rather be welcomed into a peaceful economic alliance than threatened if they participate in trade, you know, <laughs> with another country. And this goes to that friendshoring and the division of the, the world economically. Again, I, I don't think that's going to be a very popular tack for the U.S. to use. Um, but I think there's always going to be, you know, China, there, there's always going to be a, a desire in the world for a country to counterbalance China and to give an alternative to getting too close or too dependent on China. And the U.S., you know, we have if, if you don't think about the U.S. as having to be the largest economy in the world and having to unilaterally dominate all the time, the U.S. has a lot of strengths as a competitor to China. You know, we are going to be a richer country on average in terms of our per capita income. Um, we're going to be a very powerful military. We're going to be a country with a lot of soft power. Uh, I think we're going to be very attractive as a partner to counterbalance 
China, as long as we sort of aren't a bully insisting that, you know, if you interact with us, you can't interact with China at all. You know, I think that's that's a losing path in the long run here. Yeah. Well, I think we've we've reached our time, uh, and I, I, I am I beating sorry, you in be- submission through Shira. <laughs> well, I'm just sorry because there's just so much more to talk about. I think all these issues are so important, uh, considering that NATO just a week ago had, had said that China is a, a main security challenge uh, for that for the alliance, and you know we've been hearing about some of the reaction to. Uh, Nancy Pelosi making a visit to Taiwan, and we haven't even broached that subject. So we'd love to have you on again to talk about uh, (laughs) the future of the U.S.-China relationship or or non-relationship, as it were. Great. Thank you. And I should should write some of this up for uh, Responsible State. Yes, I I know. It's great stuff, Marcus. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Dan. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.